Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about issues of the day from a biblical perspective, as well as highlights from interviews, conferences, and events. Here's Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. We're highlighting remarks made by Scott Klusendorf during the Illinois Family Institute's 2023 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. Mr. Klusendorf is the founder and president of the Life Training Institute, which equips pro-life advocates to effectively defend their views in the public square. He's the author of The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Scott has taught pro-life apologetics at over 80 colleges and universities. His topic for this portion of Spotlight, Pro-Life Christianity, Engaging Your Church and Your Community. A while ago, a friend of mine who's a pro-life leader shared with me a, a rather shocking story. He said that a group of pro-lifers had been actually picketing a very large church with a pastor whose name you would recognize. And this pastor, instead of opposing the pro-lifers, came down and said to them, I'll do whatever you want. Tell me what you want me to do as a pro-life pastor. And this group who had been picketing his church did not have an answer for what they wanted him to do. So they were there to oppose that he wasn't doing enough on abortion, but they didn't have an answer to what would you have me do? I'll do my best to implement it. And so what I want to do in this session is give you the six marks of a pro-life church. You know, pro-lifers were very fond of saying pastors aren't doing enough, church leaders aren't doing enough. Well, what do we want them to do? Have you ever asked yourself this question? What would a pro-life church look like? So I'm going to try to give you six marks of a pro-life church. The first thing a pro-life church does is it teaches a biblical view of human value. Now, I'm going to give you an argument from Scripture for the pro-life view, and I'm going to shock some of you. We're not going to go to Psalm 139. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to do a different way of showing the Bible is pro-life than just pulling out Psalm 139, and here's why. A lot of our secular critics are smart. They know that Psalms is poetic literature. Now, that doesn't mean it's any less inspired. It doesn't mean it's any less authoritative but you interpret poetry different than you interpret a Pauline epistle. Can we all agree on that? In other words, if you want to learn about the justification doctrine, how we get right with God, are you going to go to Romans or would you go to Job? Well, both teach it, but which one is going to make a more direct literal path? Romans. So that's where you're going to go. Poetic passages are interpreted differently than a Pauline epistle, for example. And so what we want to do is take away from our critics an objection that, oh, that's just poetry. And I, I remember a guy early in my pro-life career saying this to me, oh, you're talking about being knit together in your mother's womb. We should take that literally, right? He said, what are you going to do a few verses later when the same psalmist talks about having communion with God at the bottom of the sea? You want to take that literally? You see the problem I ran into there? So how can we make a biblical case for the pro-life view for human value that a pro-life church ought to do? So how do we make a pro-life case from Scripture? Here it is. Premise one, all humans have value because they bear the image of God. Genesis 1 teaches that in the Old Covenant. James 3 teaches it in the New. In fact, in James chapter 3, we're told 
that gossip is so evil because it represents an assault on the image of God and the person we're gossiping about. That kind of puts a new spin on sharing information, doesn't it? In other words, God takes this seriously. All humans have value because they bear the image of God. Premise two, because humans bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood, meaning the intentional killing of an innocent human being, is strictly forbidden. Exodus 23, 7 teaches this. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 teaches this. Matthew 5 teaches this. Okay, let's take those two premises. The only question we need to ask now is, are the unborn human? Because if they are, the same commands against shedding their blood would apply to the unborn as they do everybody else, right? So we know from science that the unborn from conception are distinct living and whole human beings. The conclusion to our argument is they too are image bearers, and if they're image bearers, their blood should not be shed intentionally in a wrong way either any more than ours should be. So that's our argument from Scripture. Now, the generation of thought we have right now that basically says, you do you. you you've all heard this in cartoons and other places, right? You do you. What we seldom do, though, is stop back and say, what is the worldview idling behind that? And I'm going to give you a term that's going to sound philosophical. The worldview idling behind you do you is what's called body-self dualism. And let me explain what that is. You need to know what it is because it's driving the abortion debate, and it's also driving the debate over transgenderism, gay marriage, and a host of other issues in our culture. Body-self dualism says this. The real you has absolutely nothing to do with your body. Your body is mere physical matter in motion. That's it. There's nothing about your body that points to what you ought to be, what mission you should fulfill in life, nothing. Rather, your body is just for you to manipulate any way you want. The real you, according to body self-dualism, is your thoughts, your desires, and your aims. This is why our culture buys this line now. I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I'm a woman tra trapped in a man's body. That would have made no sense 30 years ago. It does today. Why? Because the culture has bought the notion that the real you has nothing to do with your body. In other words, what really matters to be authentic is that you do you, you do what your desires are, your desires define your identity. And until you have desires, there's no you present. This is why the culture today can say, okay, that fetus in the womb, it may be biologically human, but it's not a person. Question, have you ever met a human that wasn't a person? Some of you are looking at your mate right now going, I, I, maybe. Uh, no, you haven't. But why does the culture buy that? Because they've bought the notion that there is a distinction between a person's body and the actual real you that's there. That's body self-dualism. And if you don't address that at the worldview level, it'll be hard to engage people in conversation. I want to give you some reasons why body self-dualism doesn't work. First of all, it's entirely arbitrary. Who decides what traits count as being decisive for you to be you? Uh, who makes those decisions? Well, the answer is people with authority, political authority, who decide for the rest of us which traits matter. Now, on body self-dualism, when it comes to an issue like abortion, almost always they say the real you is your cognitive abilities, your ability to see yourself existing over time, as Peter Singer would argue, or your ability to desire go on living, like David Boonin would argue. 
These views all split the human person from the personal body that we all have. This is not a biblical worldview, but our culture is bought into it wholesale. And again, you see it in the transgender debate as well as the abortion debate. Body self-dualism is also counterintuitive. Can you hug desires, aims, and feelings? No, you hug bodies. It's also counterintuitive in another way. You end up saying things like, well, my body existed before I did. My body showed up and had to wait around for the real me to show up. We know this can't be true. You are not a mere body. You are not a mere soul. You're a dynamic union of body and soul. And that's the biblical worldview, but that's not the worldview we have right now with body self-dualism. It is the worldview the culture is buying into, and that's why they say embryos and fetuses have no right to life because they're not even there yet as persons. They have bodies, but there's no you there to speak of. That worldview is why it is feeding the whole pro-abortion notion that there can be such a thing as a human that's not a person. This worldview also means we can treat potential persons as research fodder to treat actual persons. Imagine a tornado hits this town and wipes out a school full of gifted elementary age kids. And these kids have unbelievable injuries they sustained. And they need organs from living donors to keep many of them alive and keep them flourishing. Well, right around the corner from that gifted kids school is another school for kids that are struggling with disabilities. And those kids were spared. Their school was not hit at all. On body self-dualism, you not only have the right, you have the obligation to put the needs of actual persons above potential persons. It would be perfectly permissible then to go procure organs from those healthy, disabled kids and use them to treat disease in those that are the gifted real persons. This is the body self-dualism that results in savage inequality in our culture, and it's a driving force in the abortion debate, driving force in the transgender debate. We need to be aware of it, and we need to be ready to confront it. The second mark of a pro-life church is that it preaches, teaches, and counsels that abortion is a sin. Here's the problem. When you say abortion is wrong, what do many people hear you saying? You don't like abortion. But it's possible to like something and still say it's wrong, correct? But our culture today has reduced morality to tastes like chocolate ice cream over vanilla. We don't oppose abortion because we dislike it. We oppose it because it's wrong, objectively wrong. I'm going to say a few statements, and you tell me if you can spot a problem with them, and it'll help us understand the relativistic worldview that's going on here. The primary problem is our culture is dominated by relativism, which is a belief that right and wrong are up to you. You do you. What's right for you? That's the worldview we're up against when we discuss abortion. But relativism is seriously flawed, and let me give you some statements that will help you understand it. First, it's self-refuting. Tell me what's wrong with these statements. My brother is an only child. Um, I can't speak a word in English. Don't take anybody's advice on anything. You're in rare form as usual. There is no truth. The Bears are going to win the Super Bowl. What's wrong with all those statements? They're literally self-refuting, right? They literally commit suicide. My brother is an only child. What does that make me? I can't speak a word in English. I just did. Don't take anybody's advice, including that advice. You see the problem? When somebody says to you, don't force your morals on me after you make your pro-life case, what did they just do? Forced a moral rule on you. Oh, there are no moral rules. Oh, but here's one. You have to tolerate other views, and don't you dare claim to be right. What is that if not forcing a moral rule? 
So relativism is self-refuting, but it's also impossible to say why anything is wrong, including intolerance. Mother Teresa, Adolf Hitler, well, they just had different preferences. Mother Teresa liked to help people. Hitler, well, he liked to butcher them. Who are we to judge, right? But we know better, do we not? And why do I need to be tolerant if morals are up to me personally? I choose not to be. Now what? This is the problem with relativism. The third problem is you've never met a true relativist. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it real well. The very man who tells you there are no objective right and wrong will complain if you steal his orange or cut him off in line. He will say, that's not fill in the blank, right or fair. And Lewis said, where did this notion of fairness come from? has to be an objective standard outside of us. This is the culture, though, that thinks that morality is just about you, your thoughts, your feelings, your desire, and don't let anybody tell you different. But they can't even live with that worldview because if you should never say somebody is wrong, why are they correcting you? So the next time they say to you, don't force your morals on me, I want you to be polite, but here's what I want you to say. Why not? Or what's wrong with that? Any answer they give you will be an example of them imposing a moral rule on you. Too often, pro-life Christians in the church are silenced by relativists who say, you're not loving, you're not tolerant. As if tolerant means you tolerate all ideas as being equally valid. They're not equally valid. All religious truths cannot be equally valid. You know that bumper sticker, coexist? It doesn't work because those ideas cannot all be equally true. So a pro-life church is going to teach that abortion is a sin, and when it teaches that abortion is a sin, it's saying abortion is wrong whether we like it or not. Now, again, in our churches, keep in mind, we've got people who have had abortions, we've got people who don't understand moral reasoning, and I want to relay a little anecdote of what happened to me one time. I was speaking in Denver, and the pastor met me before the service, and he said, listen, I am really nervous about you being here. I believe in your cause, but I'm nervous. I have people in my church who have had abortions, and I don't want to lay a guilt trip on them. And I said very gently, Pastor, when we don't preach, teach, and show abortion for what it is, we don't spare post-abortion men and women guilt. We spare them healing because unconfessed sin has them out of full fellowship with Christ. And he graciously agreed to let me go ahead and speak. After that presentation, a woman came up and grabbed my hand, and she wasn't going to let go of it, and I knew exactly what she was going to say. I didn't even have to guess. She said, when I was 18, I made a very bad choice. And by the way, you've met my husband. He's the pastor you met before the service. It's not his baby. It was another guy's. But I know that I need to treat abortion as a sin. I had just thought of it as an unfortunate choice I made. And she started a post-abortion recovery group in her church that I'm told was packed out and went on for several months with men and women meeting to talk about the sin of abortion in their lives. When we hide from proclaiming that abortion is a sin, we are not sparing people guilt, we're sparing them healing. We're failing to point them to the very thing that can heal them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Scott Klusendorf, during the Illinois Family Institute's 2023 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. More of his remarks from that special event after this. It's a big evening you don't want to miss. The Illinois Family Institute's Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet with best-selling author and nationally syndicated radio host Eric Metaxas. Friday, November 3rd 
at the Bolingbrook Golf Club. To attend, click events at IllinoisFamily.org. We're talking about religious freedom being constricted by the state. Will the church wake up and say, this is wrong? Eric Metaxas is the author of Bonhoeffer, Amazing Grace, and his latest book, Letter to the American Church, is a wake-up call for Christians to speak out and protect religious liberty. If you will speak up, things will change if we would but try. Eric Metaxas and the IFI Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet, Friday, November 3rd at the Bolingbrook Golf Club. To attend, click events at IllinoisFamily.org, IllinoisFamily.org. With a woman to look at culture from a Christian worldview, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. In St. Louis, a law banning so-called transgender care for minors can now take effect after a judge struck down a lawsuit that challenged it. In a two-page order, Missouri Circuit Judge Stephen Omer wrote that the lawsuit lacks sufficient evidence to delay the legislation. Quote, the science and medical evidence is conflicting and unclear. Accordingly, the evidence raises more questions than answers. End quote. Activists claim that the science in favor of so-called transgender care is settled. It's not true. Thankfully, this judge was willing to say that out loud. The legislative push came as a part of an investigation into the transgender clinic at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Back in February, a whistleblower alleged that the clinic had started transitioning more than 600 minors between 2020 and 2022. In summary, the threat of this ideology is real. The so-called science is false, and children's lives are at stake. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. We're highlighting remarks made by Scott Klusendorf during IFI's 2023 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. Mr. Klusendorf is the founder and president of the Life Training Institute. During this portion of Spotlight, he'll continue to outline the markers of a pro-life church, and he'll explain why it's so important to think biblically at the ballot box. A pro-life church equips its people to engage the culture. I want to give you a heartbreaking statistic. I'm a faculty member at Summit Ministries. For those of you that have never heard of Summit Ministries, let me tell you what it is. Each summer, all through the summer, every two weeks, we get a new group of 188 students that come in to Manitou Springs, Colorado, and we train them for two solid weeks on defending a, a Christian worldview. They get lectures on pro-life. They get a whole day with me on the pro-life issue. They learn about how to defend the resurrection. They learn how to defend the truth of the Bible, why scripture is authoritative and why you can trust it. What we're trying to do at Summit is equip our kids for the intellectual challenges they'll get hit with when they go off to college and leave the safety of our churches. I have been running a survey at Summit for the last several years, and here's the question. How many of you students before coming to Summit in your churches ever had a pro-life presentation given that equipped you to defend your pro-life view with non-Christians? Out of 188 students every session, how many hands do you think go up per session? We get about six to nine that go up, and we wonder why we're losing this fight. These kids are coming from some of the best churches in America, but they're not being taught how to defend the pro-life view. They've never been taught that pro-life syllogism. They've never been taught the science of embryology. They haven't seen videos depicting abortion. And we're expecting them to go off to college and stay strong in their faith when they haven't been prepared for it. We need to change a few things in our churches. We need to change from being hospitals that are zeroed in on people's felt needs. And we need to start 
turning our churches into training barracks where we give students basic training for their minds. When I see that many students say, I've never had any pro-life training and I've never heard this stuff that you're talking about before. They're not like those that come and, and have been through student ministries like Students for Life or our Life Training Institute. They're coming from churches, they're told the Bible is true, but they don't have any idea how to defend it against those who are gonna attack it. We've gotta change that, men and women, and we gotta start changing that right away. A pro-life church is gonna make sure every student knows how to defend the pro-life view biblically, that all humans have value because they bear the image of God, and thus the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. These students are gonna know what the science of embryology is, that from the earliest stages of development, they were distinct living and whole human beings. They're also gonna know how to argue that there's no essential difference between them as embryos and them as young adults that justifies killing them back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill them then, but not now. They're gonna know how to do that. In fact, they're gonna go a step further. They're gonna know exactly how to defend their pro-life view in a minute or less. And when they leave Summit, they know how. How many of you would like to know how to defend your pro-life view in one minute or less? I'm gonna make sure you know how to do this. All right, here it is. Pretend you have an Aunt Betty that is not a Christian and she comes to your house at Thanksgiving over the holidays and she doesn't hold your worldview. She's not Christian, she's not pro-life. And between bites of turkey and stuffing, she looks at you and says, now why are you pro-life? Here is your answer in a minute or less, and I need somebody to time me. Who's got a phone? I want you to time me. All right, start the clock. Aunt Betty, I'm pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And the science of embryology says that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and develop. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. How'd I do? 38 seconds. Okay. All right. Now, can I ask a question? How many Bible verses did I cite? But did I convey biblical truth? Yes, I did. That's your job, men and women. All right. Fifth, a pro-life church confronts its fears. Let me talk about a couple of fears pastors understandably have about abortion, and you're going to need to address these if you hope to change your pastor's view. The first fear he has is that you're going to take the church off message, that the pro-life view will become a distraction. And it's very important that you help the pastor see that abortion fits within the responsibilities of the local church, not a distraction to it. And the way to do that is to show that the abortion issue relates to the Great Commission. A lot of pastors say, we're about the Great Commission, and we should be about the Great Commission. Amen? Amen. All right. The question is, is abortion a distraction to the Great Commission? And the answer is no, and here's how we know that. What does the Great Commission tell us to do? Go make disciples. What does it mean to make disciples according to the passage? Not our church mission statement that says what it means. What does that very passage say in the Great Commission it means to make a disciple? Teach them what? To obey all that Christ has commanded. What is one of those commands? We're not to shed innocent blood. Exodus 23, 7, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. What is abortion? 
the shedding of innocent blood. Therefore, abortion relates to the Great Commission responsibilities of the local church. It's not a distraction from it. Do you follow the logic on this? In other words, you don't have to say to your pastor, oh, you're all wrong about the Great Commission. Show him how the pro-life issue fits in with the Great Commission. Another thing pastors fear, and I understand this, they fear that they're going to turn off seekers. There's a very well-known pastor in New York City who goes by the initials Tim Keller, who is a good guy in many fronts, okay? But Tim Keller has given reasons why he won't preach on abortion, and I'm very troubled by his reasons. He says this, instead of preaching moralism, we should lift up Christ and let people come to their own decisions. And he gives an example of a woman in his church, an ACLU attorney who had had three abortions, who came to his services one Sunday, and she stayed in the church, and she wrote him and said, if I had seen anything related to pro-life in your church, I would have left that very day and never come back. Instead, she stayed, and eventually, she not only came to faith in Christ, she called the pastor one day and said, I need to talk to you about abortion. And she said to Pastor Keller, do you think abortion is wrong? And he said, yes, I do. And she said, I'm starting to see it's wrong too. I'm glad it worked out for her that she eventually came to see the right decision, but do we really want to say that clerical silence in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable means of salvation, or means of evangelism, I should say? That's very troubling to me. What if she had had an abortion while she was waiting to come around to the right time while she was at that church? We should not sacrifice children on the name of going after seekers, but I think Pastor Keller missed something very important here. A lot of times people hear a pro-life talk and it doesn't turn them off. You know what it does if it's delivered well? It says to them, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, if Christians make sense on this issue, maybe they have something intelligent to say about other issues like the gospel as well. And that's what pastors need to understand. They can win preaching on abortion with unbelievers. It doesn't have to turn them away. But there is a thing we need to all ask ourselves. Do we trust God to protect his ministry through us when we preach tough truth. It's not our ministry, it's his ministry, and do we trust God to protect his ministry through us when we preach tough truth? And I think a lot of times we don't, and one of the reasons why we don't, we pursue peace instead of the Prince of Peace. And what we need to do is say, I'm gonna be true to biblical fidelity no matter what. I'm not going to sit here and let others dictate what I have courage to do. A sixth thing a pro-life church does, and this one is controversial, a pro-life church helps congregants think biblically at the ballot box. Now, let me say this. I am not saying that you have to tell people that they have to vote Republican, though I wouldn't be bothered if you did. But here's the thing. Just because there's no perfect political party doesn't mean that none of them have any merit. It also doesn't mean that some aren't better than others, right? Here's your job as a pro-life Christian at the ballot box, and you can teach this without being partisan. Your job as a pro-life Christian is to vote to promote the good and limit the evil insofar as possible given the restraints put upon you at the moment. So that means you can make the case that there are certain party beliefs that don't line up with the biblical worldview. They, they don't align with it at all. And to say that is not being partisan, it's just being accurate. You don't have to endorse candidates, but you should endorse a biblical worldview from your platform. I've never understood people who say to me, 
The Christian worldview is all-inclusive except for over here when it comes to politics where we should never try to apply it. I don't understand that view. The biblical worldview applies to all of life, including how we vote, and believers need to understand that and, and do what they can to vote in such a way that they promote the good and limit the evil. Now, I get it. There are some Christians running around right now and they're saying things like this. Well, you're compromising if you vote for imperfect legislation. Can I just say to you, no, you're not? And this is why. If you can't save all children, shouldn't you save some? Yeah, and by the way, you're not the one compromising at that point. It's the other side compromising. You aren't saying, oh, I'm choosing which children live or die. You're not doing that. You would save all of them if you had the political power to do it, right? Of course we would. All of us in this room would abolish abortion right now if we had the power to do it, would we not? When we don't have that power, though, what do we do? We should act to limit evil and promote the good insofar as we can, and that's what you're doing when you promote incremental steps to limit the evil of abortion. You're not compromising with evil. You're actually diminishing evil. You're taking away from evil. I've heard Christians say to me, I don't want to vote the lesser of two evils. Can I just say to you, you're not voting the lesser of two evils? Here's what you're doing. You're voting to lessen evil, and that's a good thing. It's not voting the lesser of two evils. You're voting to lessen evil. And I hate to break it to you, but politics will always be messy and imperfect. You're never going to find a perfect candidate because there are no perfect human beings. And that means we've got to do the best we can to limit the evil and promote the good. And that's your job as a pro-life Christian. So what does a pro-life church do? If your pastor ever says, what should a pro-life church look like? Number one, preaches, teaches a biblical view of human value. Number two, it's going to preach, teach, and counsel that abortion is a sin. Not a sin that's an issue of distaste. It's a sin that's objectively wrong. Number three, a pro-life church is going to equip its people to engage. We don't want any more students at Summit that have no idea what a pro-life case looks like. Fourth, a pro-life church is going to confront its fears. And fifth, it's going to help its congregants think biblically at the ballot box. I saved a sixth step for last. It is also going to be a church that ministers profoundly to post-abortion men and women. And that means there's only one thing that will do that, and that is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the good news that though we were rebels that God created to worship and enjoy him, we rebelled against our creator, but God graciously sent a substitute to stand in our place condemned. That gospel, men and women, is healing. And you know what? The gospel makes a whole lot more sense to people against the bad news of our sin than it does when we don't preach bad news. Use the bad news of abortion to point people to the wonderful salvation offered in Christ. When people understand the bad news of the sin of abortion, and then we point them to Jesus who can heal that, that hurt that they have from having been involved in abortion, we direct them to the gospel and they run to it. It's an antidote, not a preference at that point. Scott Klusendorf, during the Illinois Family Institute's 2023 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. Mr. Klusendorf is the founder and president of the Life Training Institute. You can find out more at ProLifeTraining.com. Now, plans are already in the works for IFI's 2024 Worldview Conference. We'll be providing updates, so stay tuned. Be sure to join best-selling author and conservative national radio host Eric Metaxas for IFI's Faith, Family, and Freedom Banquet Friday, November 3rd at the Bolingbrook Golf Club. If you'd like to attend, 
click events at IllinoisFamily.org or call IFI at 708-781-9328. We'd love to see you there. So click events at IllinoisFamily.org or call 708-781-9328. Sign on for IFI email updates at IllinoisFamily.org and you can go there to give to IFI. All donations are tax deductible. Please tell your family and friends about Illinois Family Spotlight. And until next time, stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.